Hi, I'm Hallie, and I want to welcome you to the Odd Life Podcast. That's spelled A-W-E-D, which stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. In this space, you're going to hear inspirational stories, candid and heartfelt conversations, as well as advice from experts, all with the intention of helping women like you live odd AF. Because I believe that the more of us that live awake, well, and empowered, the better this world will be. So thank you for being here and welcome to your odd life. Hello, my friends. How are you? What's happening? I'm glad you're here. Uh, I have another very special guest for you today. This woman and I uh, kind of have something in common. We actually both love the word awe. We both have acronyms that we are using uh, in our brands. Uh, mine stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. Hers stands for the Academy for Women's Empowerment. So we're both digging on empowerment for sure. Uh, she is a author of, book, of a book called Quit Being So Good. She's a speaker. She's a world traveler. She's a change agent. She is so many things. And I cannot wait for you to hear her story. And I want to just touch upon this real fast is that I have these conversations for you so that you are inspired to keep pursuing the things in your own life that you've been dreaming about that are, that are kind of those little voices that are telling you to go this direction that are telling you to speak up stand up for yourself, do the thing that you want to go do to help you see life in a different way. Perhaps I want you to know that this is for you and for you to keep following along. You know, the introductions I'm making here in the podcast, I feel like is just the first handshake. And then you get to keep following along, whether it's on their website or the books they continue to, to write, or it's a speaking engagement. You can go now go and and watch this person speak on a stage I hope that you follow these women uh, somehow, some way, in a, whatever way that feels comfortable for you so that they can stay in your life and continue to inspire you to keep pursuing this best version of you, this odd version of you. Um, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening as always. And without any more delay, here's my conversation with Christy Hemmer. Well, welcome Christy to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate it. Of course. You know, other women have said yes for me and it's all about, and I'm not very um, active on social media. So for someone to find me, I can't wait to tell my advisor team and, and they want me to do more of this. So this is perfect. So thank you. Yeah, you bet. Uh, I, I think what initially grabbed me was because you have this, the word awe as part of your, you know, you know, mantra and then what you do too. So we'll get into all that. But I just, I think maybe that's initially grabbed me and I was like, hold on, I got to figure out how this woman is and it stands for something. So we'll get into all that, but give our listeners a quick, uh, bio of kind of who you are, what you do, just a a snapshot of where you're at right now in, in the world and life. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've always been a future problem solver. And so when I was, uh, in like eighth grade, so I was about 12 or 13, I was on the state, winning a future problem solver of America team. And I think that's still what I do. And when I was eight, I wanted to be president. I wanted to have my own school. I wanted to be an author like Judy Bloom and, and circumnavigate the world. It's probably not what I said in second grade, but um, now, you know, I am president of my own, you know, own business Academy for Women's Empowerment. Ah, um, it, it is a school of sorts and that our mission is to put more women in power 
because when women lead, the world's a safer, more equitable place for everybody. And mm -hmm. I did publish my book like Judy Bloom, and I my goal is to put it in her hands, uh, quit being so good. And I'm working on my second one. And then Magellan, um, I have been like Magellan. I have been to about 67 countries. I have been around the world and actually even kayaked in the Magellan Strait, which is very, very hard. <laughs> I didn't do much of it, just a very little bit of it. Yeah. That is so crazy. You've got a crazy story. So take us back to when you were little. I mean, I, I wanted to go back a little bit, but that where did that come from? Was your mom like that? Was it your family or just something that was inside of you that were like, I want to do these things. I want to dream big, go big. Like what was that? Where did that come from? Do you think? You know, you know, I'm an early childhood major. That's where I started out. And so I feel like all of us are born with moxie, with guts. And I see it with my three-year-olds when I was a teacher. They were going as high, as long, as strong as the boys. And, you know, when they're three, four, and then things start changing as society, as well-meaning adults start saying, you know, oh, be careful. Don't get your dress dirty. Don't get hurt mm -hmm. to girls and not to boy. And I really like um, Rashma Shajani's work around Brave Not Perfect. So for me, I think it's in all of us as girls, I think for me, I was the outlier in my family that I continue to do brave things. Um, so I really think my family not to stop me. I think they were anxious, you know, when I left the country at 24, I went to Africa and they were worried about me when I did certain things, but they never put their fears on me. Um, and that's really helped me continue to be, you know, courageous. But mm -hmm. I, personally, I feel like as an early childhood teacher, all of us have the, you know, about the same amount of moxie or guts, courage. Mm -hmm. So you go, went, went to college for early, early childhood education. You become a teacher. Take us down that path a little bit. Like what life was like for you as a, you know, early, like a young adult. Yeah. So I graduated with double major from the University of Northern Iowa, Go Panthers. And in early childhood elementary education, my first job was in Houston, Texas at an inner city school okay. where I actually had children um, in gangs and, you know, cause, because the, um, the age under 10 in Texas at the time, they were told they don't know the difference between right and wrong. So my gang, the gangs targeted a lot of my boys. So I actually would color in their eyebrows. So they wouldn't show gang signals back in 1992. Uh, and started in public school, really enjoyed my inner city school life, um, and then went to a private school and, and worked in middle school there. Started in third grade at, in inner city school, and then sixth grade, middle school and, and private school, got my master's at the University of Houston. So same program as Brene mm -hmm. Brown, for her, you know, for her master's program at the University of Houston. And then, you know, from there, moved to New York, was faculty development specialist, and then to international schools, became a principal of an all-girls school in Memphis, and, you know, back to international schools in Tokyo. So total around 20 plus years in education as a teacher, counselor, wow. principal. So you're in Tokyo, and obviously you bopped around. You're in Houston, Memphis, Tokyo, like multiple places. You have had this bug to travel since you were young. Is that correct? I mean, or just see the world or, you know, and did that come from someplace as well? Like where did that come from? This, this vision to like see the world, be in the world, be out there. Yeah. Good question. Um, when I was that little girl, you know, I see, saw King Tut's mask in my textbook and I was like, I want to see that. And the Panama Canal for some reason and Magellan, he, I loved Magellan for some reason. Those were three things that stood out. And then I was kind of a little disappointed in myself because they're all men. 
And then I was like, yeah. wait a minute, because all history is written about men. There was, I'm sure, women doing these things too, but they're not written about in history books. So then I yes. gave myself a pass on that one because I didn't have access on that. Uh, and That's then right. I'd say my first trip over, I mean, I w- went to Mexico when I lived in Texas. I don't really count that. But my first trip overseas was when I was 24. I went on a safari to East Africa. Um, and it was because I was teaching third grade and I discovered a story, Bringing the Rain to Capiti Plain. And it's a Nandy tale about the rains of Africa and how they were laid. Mm-hmm. And, and and then I brought in, I was, I did multiple intelligences back then. And so I brought in the, you know, the IMAX, I think I piloted, pirated it after the, you know, VHS off of the TV of the National sure. Geographic of the uh, migration of the wildebeest. And I was like, oh, I want to see the wildebeest migrate. And a part of this also was right before that my dad was diagnosed with leukemia and of mm. of all four of my grandparents at that point had cancer and three of them had died of cancer. And so I thought statistically, cause I do have a math brain, I could, will get cancer, you know, all four of my grandparents, you know, my dad. Uh, and so I decided if I'm going to do this, I need to do it now. So that was, sure. I worked three jobs and saved the money and went to, uh, on a safari to East Africa, to Tanzania and Kenya, saw the wildebeest migrate from a hot air balloon um, in the Serengeti. Oh gosh. That's so crazy. It's so crazy. You, this planted in you, obviously, at an earlier age. And I just, I love that, that you dreamt that big for yourself. And you said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do it. You worked the three jobs. You mm-hmm. saved the money. Because so many of us at that time, like, oh, it'd be so great to go do that. And then do nothing about it. Yeah. And just think about it and watch a TV show instead or, you know, a movie and <laughs> yep. and call it good, you know, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did it. That's crazy. And at that time, because you're roughly my age. And so mm-hmm. back then... We didn't have the internet, we right, to show us, to show us what's possible, mm-hmm. to show us like someone else has done this before. This was like all on you, like to believe in yourself. Now, were your parents super supportive of like you, like you said before, they were kind of fearful for you, but were they like, go girl, you go for it? Or is it mostly your friends that was support system at this point to tell you to go for it? Or was it just in you? It was, yourself, you know, it was I'm just going. in me. I do remember getting back and my, my, um, dad saying how my grandpa, because I guess he had been diagnosed with cancer, but hadn't passed away yet from cancer. He had said, mm-hmm. oh, we're so glad you're back in the U.S. And I didn't, you know, I was 24. I didn't know what that meant. But you're right. I mean, sure. I went to a travel agent. But the cool thing about the travel agent I went to, you know, I could choose, you know, three different, you know, uh, lines that would do uh, safaris. And even back then, I chose Mikado safaris mm-hmm. because I wanted one that was based in Africa. And today nice. they still exist. And they are known, I mean, they're like one of the top award winners that give back to the community. And so even back then, that social business part of me was activated. Mm-hmm. I could have done Amber Combi in Kent. I could have done Mikado. And there's a third one I could have chose for, you know, a safari. Uh, and I chose the one that was based in Kenya. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, so you end up doing these things. You end up eventually in Tokyo. Is that where you had this moment where like, I'm done? I'm done with this yeah. This uh, or kind of organ like this education life. I want to do something different. Like, tell me about that moment. Was there something that specifically happened, or just like I'm fed up, or what was the thing that that like kicked it off for you? Yeah. Well, you know, in my book, you know, is quit being so good. And in that school, I was told by the other counselor, you know, quit being so good, quit doing all these things. You're making me look bad. And so mm. for me, I was like, you know, I'm tired of this school. I'm tired of you know mediocrity, and I was tired of education. And I thought 
okay, I'm going to go to a different school. So I went to look in for other jobs and looked at administration positions in Bangkok. And, and then when I went to write the cover letter, I realized it's not even here. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in education mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was turning 40. And so I okay. said to myself, you know, what do you give yourself when you turn 40? And I was like, oh, my last continent. I hadn't been to Antarctica yet. And so I took a year off. Um, and it wasn't my first time taking a year off. I had taken a year off between my job in Jakarta and my job in Memphis. Um, wow. And so I had, and I also had taken a year off between my job in Memphis and my job in Tokyo. So this time I was like, I'll take a year off, go to Antarctica and backpack on $20 a day, not on Antarctica, but through South America. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and that one year turned to four years. But it was really what I said to myself was from here on out, I want freedom of time and place. Mm -hmm. And as an educator, mm -hmm. you know, since I was four, Abel told me when to eat and when to pee. Yes. Even as, yes. you know, even as a principal, everything's based around that. And so I wanted freedom of time and place. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it wasn't going to be an education traditional education because I would still say my number one job is teacher I still am yeah. a teacher yeah was that something in your family were your parents teachers mom teacher like grandparents and like that or is it are you the first one to be a teacher no my grandma you? I guess was a teacher back in the country school days and my mom went to a country school first through eighth grade so my mm -hmm. grandma but I didn't really know about that till later on so nobody else in my family but my sister also yeah. is an educator um now and my other sisters are in, in training and in social work. So we're all very similar. It's innately someplace in there. Yeah, somewhere. I think so. I, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, the reason I ask that is sometimes, you know, we tend to go into things because we've, it's what we've seen growing up, like mm -hmm. our parents, grandparents were all teachers. That's just what the life that you, you know, you knew and it was comfortable or whatever, but, uh, or that seemed like a natural path to go down. Yeah. Actually, sometimes. I was but, discouraged from my guy friends in high school. They all told me I was too smart to be a teacher. And I said, okay, I'll be really dumb and give me your kids. And then they stopped. Yes. Then they yes. then they shut up as I should. <laughs> yes, yes. That makes zero sense. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so you did take breaks in between different jobs. So these these year-long breaks. So mm -hmm. tell me about this traveling solo for 20 bucks a day. Like that is, again, I'm, I am the epitome of like Midwest girl. Haven't left the Midwest a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Stayed in the Midwest and mm -hmm. did the Midwest thing, the college, the, the getting married, have the kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only travel I see is, you know, uh, the vacations or whatever. Haven't mm -hmm. done anything like what you've done. And I just, it's, I commend you for, you know, doing this. It's not, uh, I'm not saying not normal. It's not something that I feel for me is natural, um, but something I would love to do. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I'm so admiring of you to be able to do that for yourself. So tell me about this time. Like how old were you when you first did your, your, year off, take your off and go? Yeah, sure. First of all, I do want to pause and just say that moms have the hardest job in the world. And anyone who mm -hmm. chooses to be a mom is somebody I highly respect. And, you know, my, my mom always says, Christy, you'd be a great mom. It's not the lifestyle I chose, but I always say I'm a better auntie and, you know, it's, um, I, there's plenty of places for me to love on people, but I want to pause and, and, you know, thank you for your work as a mom because, you know, moms, it's the hardest job in the world. And from what I can tell. So yeah, I do want yeah. to pause and say that. Um, oh, thank you. So my first break was uh, after Jakarta. So I was in Jakarta International School in 2001 to 2003. I was the middle school counselor, and that was 9-11. So I experienced 9-11 mm -hmm. in Indonesia, which is the most Muslim country in the world. And so people were not sure what that meant. People in sure. Indonesia were lovely, 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 lovely. And no problems 
with the people who were there locally. Uh, we, there was problems with people coming in from other places that caused problems so with the Bali bombing and hotels being bombed. And so those two years were really hard. We also had our first SARS. So the first SARS was, you know, it, during that time period, um, we had the Bali bombing. We lost a teacher to that. So there's a lot of different things. And so after that year, I was like, after those two years, I was like, you know, I want to do something different, but I didn't know what. And so I decided sure. to take a year off. And when I was in Africa, the first time I saw Mount Kilimanjaro and I said, when I come back, I'm going to climb it. So that was part wow. of that trip. As I climbed Kilimanjaro, I you know traveled for I think six months. Spent um, the holidays in Australia with a good friends, and then came back to the U.S. and then got a job um, as the principal of the school in Memphis. And then those two years in Memphis were hard years, and so I decided, oh, I'm going to take when I quit my job. I said I'm going to take a year off and write a book. And and the mm -hmm. reason that twenty dollars came about was when I got back from a Habitat for Humanity trip um, after the tsunami, um, the Boxing Day tsunami. I went to Thailand and helped rebuild in Kolok and and when I came back, the, the guy I was seeing, you know, he could see I was miserable in my job, and he said, "Christy, really, how much would it cost mm -hmm. you to live a year in Bangkok?" And I realized, you know, okay, seven dollars for a bed, mm -hmm. you know, five dollars for food. $2 for internet or a dollar. Cause at that time you had to pay for internet, you know, a sure. couple dollars for beer and French fries. It was like, it added up to about $20 a day. And sure. that's how the $20 came about. And really that's $600 a month. I start looking at my credit card bills and saying, Hey, if I stop doing this or start doing this or be more intentional, I could save that money without really noticing much of a lifestyle change. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, the two times yeah. that, and that's where the $20 came from was that conversation. Got it. And so traveling by yourself, what was that like? I mean, uh, being a woman back then, back then again, sometimes no cell phones, no way to let, yeah. me, let anybody know where you no were. No GPS. Like, like yeah, 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 right. And being able to travel like that and, and what that was like for you. Was there um, any concerns you had or you just were like, hey, I'll handle it when it comes my way? Or what was it like for you to travel by yourself? You know, I think one thing is a single female, um, I didn't have a choice. Um, I guess my friends, you know, we were educators so, and they, my friends, as I think about my friends growing up and like in my early year life in my twenties, they didn't have the moxie. They would have been a, probably a danger for me to travel. And I just did it. Um, so for me, I really don't know any way, other way to, I did do some group travel. I'm not a very good group traveler, uh, because I don't like to do what all the group does. They do too much touristy things. Uh, but so for me, I don't know anything different. I I'd say, you know, of course you come into places and then you learn things like I'd learned to wear a fake wedding ring when I travel in India or sure. other countries that I don't get bothered if I have a fake wedding ring on or, you know, obviously, you know, night and those kinds of things. And, but, you know, trusting the world, you know, trusting people, there is so much good in the world that there's no mm -hmm. way I would still be here and alive and, and okay. If, if other people hadn't stepped up and helped me in ways that I know and in ways I don't know. So for yeah. me, I, I don't really know any other way of traveling other than by myself. Um, but, and I really I enjoy it. it. I really enjoy the people I meet, the ventures I have. I bet. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about this when you mentioned this, um, we did, you didn't know any other way to do this, but because back, for example, I had a, a college girlfriend that after high school, her parents gifted her a, a backpacking trip over in Europe and, and her and a good girlfriend went 
And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, my daughter's 18 and she's graduated. I'm like, I don't know if I would ever send her over. Like, I don't know if I'd send her over now. I think because we we almost have too much information about what's out there in the world. And of course the headlines, it's all clickbait. They want us to know every horrible thing that's happened in the world. Those horrible things were still happening. We just didn't know about them all. And I feel like there's something about being kind of ignorant about certain things in the world that, because uh, we don't need to know everything. And it's instilled this fear, I think, in a, a lot of us to go out and do things when it's really not as scary as the world makes, or the, the media or whatever makes it out to be. Because you've obviously lived it. You've been there. I'm sure there's a lot of danger in places you went, but you, like you said, you learned and whatever. But do you feel that same way a little bit? Like we know too much to like, and it holds us back? Well, I think America is based in fear and I mm-hmm. think other countries are not. I think we come from a what I call me to we. We come from me, 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 rather than we. And other countries mm-hmm. like El Salvador, Indonesia, even India is all we-based. It's all community-based. And so they do look out for each other. And it's interesting because people are always like, oh, what's the most country, you know, what's the most dangerous country you've been to? And I say the United States and they laugh at me, yeah. but I'm very serious. You know, yeah. guns are not. Uh, police officers in Japan do not carry guns. Most countries in the world, police officers do not carry guns. They don't even carry, you know, and, you know, if, and when you hear about sexual assault in other countries, it's usually a Westerner that attacks a woman, not somebody who's from that country. So to me, wow. the most dangerous country I have been to is the United States. And, wow. um, and the statistics show that actually the violence, the domestic violence, not against women, but like the internal violence is comparable to the gang activity in El Salvador. And we do not have the gang activity in, as El Salvador does. But in El Salvador, I don't worry about being killed or hurt in a movie theater, in a church, in a school. Yeah. I mean, when Sandy Hook happened, I was in Malaysia and I remember seeing it on the um, TV and I thought, what are they thinking that our children are killing children? And so for me, um, when people are saying, be safe, I'm like, you be safe. You're staying in the States. I'm leaving. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. I know. But that's my perspective. Mm -hmm. As a woman, as a man is probably different. um, But as a woman, definitely. Mm -hmm. 100%. So uh, the travel and all the things you've been able to go do, you said you've been to how many countries? About 67. That's insane. Crazy. (laughs) What are the things like the most important things you've learned from all that travel? Like what were the, the, you know, um, if you could give somebody advice about traveling solo, what would be some of the top couple things that you would share with them that maybe like lessons you learned the hard way that maybe someone could take off the top and go, okay, I'm not going to do those things off the bat. Yeah. You know, and, and actually my next book is is going to be about my travel and the things I learned. So you'll have to make sure you pick up oh, my cool. book then, yeah. but it's yeah. in the writing process. Sure. But I'd say, you know, number one is, you know, being present. Um, listening, asking questions, seeing people, hearing people. And the cool mm-hmm. thing about that is that translates to everything I do mm-hmm. and anything everybody does. So I think, you know, really, especially because I am, you know, a typical American, I speak English. I know enough Indonesian to get smiles and kindness. I know enough sure. Spanish to communicate what I need, but otherwise those are the languages and I don't have other languages and it's not a gift of mine. So I always learn enough of the language, obviously when I get there enough of, 
enough to say good morning or hello, enough to say, excuse me, I'm sorry, and enough to say, you know, that's bad, like bad behavior. So if someone does something to me or says something to me, I can say, hey, I, you know, that's bad. So, um, and then of course, enough to say, you know, please, thank you, that kind of thing. But for me, I think one of them is to be present. The other one I think is the idea of trust you know, trusting mm-hmm. my gut, the times I've gotten in trouble, I didn't trust my gut, my gut was right. And I, di- I didn't listen to it. Um, sure. Trusting others, trusting the world, and mm-hmm. trusting in the good. Uh, and then I think another one would be, I really, you know, after living in Indonesia and living in Japan, and, you know, most of the time, I'm in countries that come from interdependence rather than independence. And I think, really thinking about, I go with win, win, win. So I love Stephen Covey's work with win-win. I always look at what's the win for you? What's the win for me? What's the win for all of us? So the community. So I think those are some things that definitely, you know, uh, travel has taught me. And also too, you know, that if there's going to be a problem, it's going to almost always be my fault that I Hmm. did messed up. You know that. Interesting. Even like my first chapter in my book happens in Vanuatu where I'm teaching the kids how to play red light, green light. And they caught on, these first graders caught on to Itsy Bitsy Spider, all these other things really quickly. And they didn't get red light, green light. I was like, how could they not do this? So I stopped and thought about it and realized, "Uh, Christy, there's no electricity on this island. There's no running water and there are no cars. They've never seen a red light and a green light. So of course it was me that was, you know, didn't get it. Yeah. That's funny. Mm-hmm. How funny. Like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Yeah. Perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me, so then you have this Academy for Women Empowerment. Yep. Women's Empowerment. Um, tell us a little about what that is, like where it came from, the idea, like what the mission behind it is, all that. Yeah. So it came from my classroom. My big question was, why do my girls and women in general shrink in a classroom, in a boardroom, in a conversation? Didn't matter if I was working with, you know, women in El Salvador in the garbage dumps or mm-hmm. if I was working with billionaires or millionaires in Tokyo, it's the same. And so what really was clear in my classroom when I went from sixth grade to eighth grade. And so that question, it goes back to my future problem solver. Like how do, what's the answer to that question and how do I solve it? And that's really how the business started was to, you know, answer the question and solve the problem. And what we do is we put more women in power so that um, when women lead, we know that. Uh, engagement, innovation, collaboration, retention, financials all go up and safety Mm. go up, belonging, inclusion when women lead. And so essentially I want the women to be and girls to be safe. And Mm -hmm. so that means equity. And that's how I use my business. And the two systems of power that I want to disrupt is corporate America and education. For sure. So most of your work here is in the United States or is it all over the world? It's all over the world. Yep. It's all over the world. Mostly with women. I I get pulled a lot to work with girls. And of course, I love working with girls and it is a strength of mine, but there's really good programming already for girls. So I don't need to go into that area. I really focus on women uh, mainly. And uh, and then I I guess lately I have been working with some young women. uh, What group I've really targeted is uh, female collegiate athletes, because what Mm. I hear them say is what I hear women in corporate America say in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And so I'm like, if I can disrupt the system of power, and and there's a percentage like 96 or 94% of women in the C-suite were athletes. So to me, if I can disrupt Mm. that system, then, then they won't need me later. Yeah. So what, t- my daughter's a former college athlete. So now yeah. you've perked my interest. Oh, good. So tell me what you, what you've, um, 
like gleaned from that? Like, what's the the issue they're having in that group of women? Yeah. What's the well, one, what's the thing that came up? Well, one is they're not treated equally, right? A lot of them don't mm-hmm. even have locker rooms. We know, you know, with you know the story from this summer about Brittany, like they're not paid equally, so they have to find other jobs. They're stretched yeah. thin. They have more responsibilities. Um, I think also like some of the comments I get from some of the work I get from the athletes is like. I'm I'm only seen as a female athlete, you know. I want to see be seen as more, and you know they get sure. objectified, you know, by sometimes by you know obviously sometimes by the men, but sometimes even by the university. So those common things about the inequity, the, how they're treated, how they're they're not valued. Well, look at the you know the women's soccer team for the national team, world champions, sure. how many times in a row and get paid way less than the men, and the men sometimes don't even make the the final cuts. So right. it's that whole piece of of equity. Love it. Okay. Got it. And then, uh, going from this, you, you, you know, and it's obviously a big part of your, your work. Uh, where does social entrepreneurship tie into all this? Is it something separate? Is it something you're, you've done this since the beginning, um, as well, like in other countries, is it something that you're doing there or is it something that's part of the underlying like foundation of what you do with the Academy as well? Yeah, it's the foundation of the Academy. And so I learned about social entrepreneurship in Nicaragua. I read Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Dewan's uh, book, Half the Sky. And, and then I met Janie who's British and she had a social business and hers was, she used, she had a cafe and a hostel and in Italy and the money went toward, uh, the building the communities and the coffee communities, focusing on women. And then also like when there was disasters, like flooding and stuff, she would help with that too, with the money. Um, And so my business is, you know, it's the idea of taking a social problem and using business to solve it. And I am, and so in Minnesota, I am a public registered public benefit corporation, which means my business um, does good. And so then that's, and you'll have other ones too that may do like, um, like in Minnesota, we have Sunrise Banks as well. And they're also a B Corp. I'm not a B Corp, but uh, Mm -hmm. I am registered as a public benefit corporation, which means my business is, um, does good. That's all that. Yes. People always like, oh, I love your nonprofit. I'm like, nope. Uh, They're like, oh, I love your LLC. I'm like, nope. I'm like, I'm an S Corp. (laughs) And so, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, this social entrepreneurship uh, you know, foundation has created your academy. It's helped. It's helped create. So then you have this book that you decide to write. And when did when did you publish this book? Was it last year? No, it was um, uh, International Women's Day, of course, twenty twenty one. So during okay. COVID, got it. A couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So I love this. So tell me what uh, where the idea for the book came from, uh, like the process of writing it, all that kind of stuff. I'd love to learn a little bit about that whole. Uh, process for you and then like the lessons you learned from writing it, how it's been. I want to get into the book tour, all that. So let's talk about <laughs> this book. It's called Quit Being So Good mm-hmm. and tell us what it's about, where you got the idea from it. Uh, well, I got the idea. Um, well, I, my advisory team, everyone kept saying you need to write a book. And when I was a little girl, I always wanted to write like Judy Bloom. I wanted to be in the mm-hmm. card catalog, which I'm not going to be unless I create my own. Uh, sure. But uh, and then I was in journalism school in my 20s. I didn't wasn't able to finish because I was teaching full time and couldn't take the last class. So I was always interested in storytelling. And mm-hmm. so the idea of the book really came from I really had a great team. I had a really great coach, Amy, uh, at Wise Inc. And so she really helped me figure out uh, what it was going to be about. So you, they say you should write a book about 
whatever question you get asked the most. And I get asked the most, how did you live on $20 a day? Which yeah, I mean, yeah. is actually made my second book. But my first book, I was like, mm, that's really, I didn't do that. I did that so I could keep doing what I wanted to do. It wasn't like, it was a means to an end. It wasn't what I was excited about. Sure. Um, so for me, the first story that I wrote was Get on the Roof and Others Will Follow. And Amy helped me kind of figure out, at first I thought it was me a book about how does a feminist, you know, travel the world. But then it turned out to, you know, how do you, you know, reclaim your power? How do you own yourself? And how do you be unapologetic? So when I was a little girl, I was always nice, smart, Christy. And of course, you know, you need to get along with others and be smart to do good things. But I was so much more than that. So, and then, uh, you know, when I was 50 and I was chosen for this program, even I was talking to Amy on the phone and the person who was my supervisor said, you know, the other women in this program would like you better if you weren't so good. Can you quit being so good? And I was like, there's the title of my book. Yeah, <laughs> um, no kidding. And I wanted to say, quit being so good, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. But my Amy said, that's too long. And actually, I like that it's just quit being so good because some women interpret it as quit being the nice girl mm. or the good girl. And that, yeah. that's good, too. Yeah. I like that as well. So that's yeah. the book. And then the writing process, I mean, that is one thing I can say. Thank you, COVID, too, because COVID, obviously, as a public speaker, shut down my business. I think I dropped 80% that year in 2020. Sure. So I sure. had more time to write. Um, and then I was going to go with an agent, but I didn't do it soon enough. So I did publish with a small independent press, Wise Inc., and they were really great. They're women-owned, locally-owned, BIPOC-owned here in the Twin Cities. So. I think what's really cool is I, I looked at your story a little bit about um, you going on tour with yeah. this book and what you did for it. Tell us about the story about how you got this going. You did a Kickstarter and helped kind of launch this this book tour with this book. Tell me about that a little bit. Well, um, when I used to be single and um, come back from travels, I used to get into my old convertible and go see all my friends. And mm -hmm. then when I start my business, which is like having a baby, and then I started dating yeah. my partner you know, then he's here in Minnesota. So I didn't travel as much. And then um, when COVID happened, I knew I could, I w when I turned 50, I thought I would do my international tour, but I turned 50 during COVID. And so mm -hmm. that changed. And so I, I was like, hmm, how can I see people I love travel? And I could yeah. hear my partner saying, and how are you going to generate revenue? So I thought, book tour. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, and initially, I was going to do like a transit van and like do like a deck on the top, I could stargaze. And but then I didn't realize I don't want to live out of a van because I want to see my friends and I want to stay with them. So that's sure. what turned into the Jeep was to be able to, you know, travel with the Moxie mobile and travel around the country and see people with the book tour. So where did you, where was the, the tour focus mostly? Was it Midwest? Did you go all over? Where did you, where did you go for this tour? Um, I go all over and I continue to go all over. I, you know, I do a lot. Now I really go where someone I have a, you know, where someone's hired. So like my last time I was in Chattanooga, I did the women's fund. And so then I drove down there and on the way there, I stopped in Columbia, Missouri and worked with healthcare. I oftentimes sure. will stop at bookstores or breweries owned by women. And, you know, um, and that's why I stopped at the university of Kentucky and worked with a cheer squad. So, you know, I really kind of, you know, meet people and then say, who would I, you know, would be a good one to, for me to work with? So my next one is um, going to be to Florida. Um, we have a wedding in April. And so I'll drive down there and I'm stopping back again in Kansas City and Columbia nice. and work with some um, residents, doctors in um, Kentucky and, and wherever, whatever else is still kind of forming right now. Okay. 
And so when you're working with these people, like the doctors, you said the cheer squad, whatever, what, tell me, tell me like how your, what your work is like with them, like what you're doing with them. Is it education? Is it a quick workshop? Is it a speaking engagement? Like, or all those things? All those things. It just depends. Okay. Um, usually with athletes, the power of presence, like what do you want to be known for to own your story is one that's really popular. Like with the women's fund, they wanted a keynote speaker. So then I did what be what she can see. Um, and sometimes it's like a book talk. I've done one before where a financial advisor hired me to work with her clients. And so she interviewed me about, you know, kind of like the lifestyle and of, of a social mm-hmm. entrepreneur. So it, it all kind of depends on what is needed from that group. Got it. And so you have this whole speaking wing of, or, you know, section of your, your life as well now. Mm-hmm. So when did the speaking engagements kick up? When did that start for you? You know, it was really big in 2019. In fact, I was actually hired to speak for the UN women at South by Southwest on panels and wow. yes. And I was hired, you know, by a lot of different companies and then um, that year. And then of course COVID happened. So that was, that mm-hmm. was, that was the first thing to fall was South by Southwest, yeah. which was one of my wow. big things that I had in my kind of out dream list was to be South by Southwest. So th- with the UN women. So that's pretty, 2019 is when I really started speaking more. I'd say now after COVID now that I'm doing more speaking as well. Quit being so good. Uh, the book. What do you hope people get out of it when they read it? Like what what do you hope the readers walk away with? Yeah, good question. I really hope that the reader walks away. To me, I describe it as having like your best friend, your auntie, and your life coach in your back pocket. It's the book that Mm -hmm. I needed growing up because I grew up in Iowa and there was really nobody that I knew that was like me and no one that I really saw that was like me. And so for me, it was, it's that piece of, even like one of the, a young woman I know in um, Kentucky, I know she picked up this book because, well, she told me she picked up the book because her family, like she, this is who she is, but her family, you know, outrightly rejects who she is. And so mm. it's that support. Um, but really, I think my, I think my biggest compliment that I think or my biggest compliments is I don't want to change who you are. I want you to be more of who you are. So yes. my hope is when you read the book, it's not like a, self-help book. I mean, I guess it probably could be categorized. It's more about not changing who you are. It's about being more of who you are. And mm-hmm. that's what I hope that women walk away with. I love that. And I'm actually uh, men and- too, because my cousin, he's 24 an engineer. And he said, Christy, I feel more confident after reading your book. And I was like, great. <laughs> I know it was awesome. And that's one thing I did write it. I wrote, wrote it unapologetically for girls and women, but accessible for men and boys. Yeah. Everyone can can benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a teacher. I love my girls yes. and I love my boys. Yes, mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, so, you know, you've got all these things going on. Mm-hmm. You've had, yeah. you know, uh, a lot of different angles of your life. What was your support system like? Especially since you're, you know, you're off on your own a lot traveling. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of things out in the world on your own. How do you have a support system? And if you don't, or if you do have a support system, how did you, how did you, uh, how did you foster that? How did you facilitate that? And and uh, what advice could you give women that are trying to do some big things in their life? And to back up a second, I think women have a hard time doing big things when they don't have people around them that are cheering them on or two, just haven't been role models for them. It's, you're kind of having to start over and you're kind of reinventing the wheel a little bit yeah. um, in your in your life and uh, or creating the wheel, I guess, honestly, in your, in your maybe family of origin. How did you get that? 
uh, in your life to help you do what you do on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to a lot of the, you know, what people are saying now is starting with yourself. So my biggest support system is myself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of that difference between confidence and self-assurance, like confidence comes from what people tell you or what you tell yourself, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Self-assurance is knowing I'm going to be okay. This might happen. Mm -hmm. This might happen. This So I'd say my biggest support system is believing in myself. Um, My partner is a great support. Like, and we're getting better about like uh, better about supporting each other when I'm traveling, you know, setting like virtual dates and things like that. Um, My parents are very supportive. They have, they don't understand still what I do, but they're supportive (laughs) of me. They're like, you know, we don't really know what you do, but we, you know, we we're here for you. They cheer me on and they're supportive. Nice. And they're always happy when I get back into the U.S. So, um, yeah, but they're very supportive. (laughs) But I'd say mostly my support system, you know, changes a lot depending on like at first it was my educator friends. And then when I became more of an administrator is my administrator friends. And then by then I was in the international world. So it was my traveler friends. And then, you know, then it was I started my business. It was my social entrepreneurship friends. Now I'm transitioning more into writers. So it's my writer friends. And like when I travel to other places in other countries, especially, you know, when meet um, meetup was a big deal, I would just Google like social entrepreneurs in Minneapolis and all these organizations would pop up. And that's where I would go for people who to support me. Um, and then when I went to Aruba for my seven week, you know, one happy workation, I Googled social entrepreneurs. and That's how I met Annika. And then she introduced me to Sharice and Deborah who are in the university system. And then there's an impact hub. And so I went there and then they introduced me to a whole bunch of other people. So I really build community and support when I'm, you know, in those places. Hmm. Um, as I go. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it depends on what you know, what's important to you. And I do look at, you know, yeah, I just Google, like if I think of a city I want to go to, I'll, you know, put it in there and say, Hey, what's this? And, and then you start noticing patterns, like women owned breweries, women owned bookstores are very supportive of my work. So I, then I'll kind of start there. Um, and then that's awesome. Connected with Wise, which is women in sports and entertainment. So then I'll say, oh, what's Atlanta doing and what's Minneapolis doing? So finding those things where I really connect, but it changes depending on where I am, you know, like who I am at that time of where I mm-hmm. connect. Mm-hmm. So you've got a sports connection, obviously. <clears throat> what's the, you, did you play sports as a kid? Um, not very well. I mean, I, I, I did play tennis and college for one season and I played in high school and um, I coached tennis, but um, I really focus on sports because women in power are athletes. You know, when you say mm-hmm. 94 to 96% of women C-suite are athletes. So for me, I want to focus on those, those athletes um, as well. Well, that speaks to me because my daughter's, like I said, a former athlete. So I'm like, ooh, I gotta like figure out how she gets involved in that. Why is what's what's going on with that? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot, and you know, with Title IX being the 50th anniversary, there's a lot of things behind it, um, and there is a lot, you know, now that women collegiate athletes can get paid for sponsorships. Like I work with that too. Is yes. the women like they're so excited? To, and I said, well, do you want to? Do you believe in their mission? No, I'm like then choose someone else. You know, don't yeah. don't wait to be chosen. Like who do you want to? represent. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that represents, you know, yeah, it represents you just as much as you represent them. At yeah. That point, and I'd so. say more represents you, especially as women, because we get judged more than men and who we represent. Yeah. For me, the odd life again is about being awake while well and empowered. A lot of sometimes what we, to get us to that point, it takes a lot of courage and takes a lot of, um, like you say, moxie mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. uh, into that into that kind of mindset because there's so much against us. Like there's so many things that are pushing back on us to keep us from living that way. Yeah. Um, is there anything like a piece of advice you could give somebody about 
how to keep pushing forward in spite of the fear that you have is like that courage moxie, like where, what can somebody do to either build that muscle or find it within themselves to keep moving forward, regardless of how much fear they have? Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, I, I guess my thoughts would be, you know, understanding and believing that I will be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like oftentimes when I ask women, like they're about to leave corporate America and start their own business, I'm like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm like, they're, and they're like, I, I had to go back to corporate. I'm like, will it be there? They're like, yes. And so it's like, you know, oftentimes you can go back to where you are, you know, obviously you really mm-hmm. can't go exactly back, but the idea of I will be okay, you know, yeah. that, that I have it in me. Believing in that, I think the other thing is knowing that um, it's every single day. You know, I think Amy Cuddy says in her TED Talk, small tweaks, big changes. Um, mm-hmm. One of my very favorite quotes, like when I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not making big impact. and This is so hard. This is a struggle. I think of a quote, I forget, one of the founders of Twitter said, Twitter was an overnight success 13 years later. You know, sure, everyone sure. else yeah. said it was overnight success, but they had been at it 13 years before everybody else yeah. said it was. So yeah. Yeah. I think for me that, you know, is thinking you're going to be okay and little steps, you know, yep. uh, Margaret Atwood, you know, a writer says word by word, by word, by word. word. Yep. And that's how you yep. get a book. <laughs> yeah. so. Or the whole, I, I, yeah, the, the idea of like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's uh-huh. not, you don't have to eat the whole thing. You don't yep. have to go tackle the big project, start small and get there. Um, and I guess the other thing would be, um, you're going to fail, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're doing your best work, you're fail. You should fail in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not pushing your limits, then you're in your comfort zone. Exactly. If you're not scared, you yeah. know, what's that about? Yeah. One of the books I loved, uh, and I mentioned this in the podcast a few episodes ago, was the book by Martha Beck mm-hmm. um, about the way of integrity. Mm. And it's really hard, I feel like, to live a life if you're truly truly trying to you know, be your authentic self. You're going to have a lot of things that are going to be super hard but you know that you have to move that direction because it's the most in alignment with who you truly are. Otherwise you're not really truly living. I think that's so much of like, and like you talk about this with empowerment with women is women like pull back so much and hold back at themselves. And, and I think for so long, even as mothers, like we don't even know what we want anymore because we haven't really truly lived as where we're supposed to. We did all the things we were thought we we're supposed to do and lived a life that according to rules and, and uh, expectations and whatnot, and to actually pursue something because it's something that we actually want. That's a whole, you know, a whole nother ball game. And True, it really but, is. But you know, when you do that, you can still have fear, but you know that if you don't do it, it's one of those, it'll be the biggest regret or it'll be something that, um, you'll always wonder about. And it's like, like you said, what, what do you have to lose? Like you can always, you know, Hey, you moved to a new city. You didn't, didn't work out. You can move back. Nothing yeah. is like, you're not, you know, it's not written in stone. You have to stay there forever. Oh, you made that one mistake. Now guess what? That you got to live with it the rest of your life. But no, things can change. And I, I love that you said that is that, you know, what's the worst going to happen? Corporate America is still going to be there. You can go back to it, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just think like women in general, there is for so long has been this uh, belief about doing what's expected of us rather than doing what's really, you know, within us. And um, I love that you're talking about this because I think it's important for women to find their voice and find what's inside that's really making them who they are and what's possible for them. And I, I just hope that women get a chance to pick up this book. And I'd love to, can't wait to read the next book too, but just to help 
inspire them to keep pursuing themselves. Honestly. Yeah. To be, to be more of you, not less of you. Yes. And when I say that, you know, the three steps in my book is to take up space, mm-hmm. you know, and that can be physically, emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, mm-hmm. voices, all that standing up, um, be first. So be the first to, you know, um, you know, be in space or be the first to, you know, get this, that award, but also, or to be the first follower, because mm-hmm. we don't have movement without first followers. And then the third step is to look for the helpers. And I'm not saying not be a helper, but we already know how to do that. Like when when my students wouldn't do well on a test, I'd be like, what'd you study? Well, they studied the things they already knew because it made them feel good, Mm -hmm. but they didn't say the things they didn't know. So to me, look for the helpers is to practice. There are so many helpers. I would not be, you know, ah turns 10 in September Mm -hmm. there. I would not be in business if I didn't have helpers, those Mm -hmm. change makers out there. I would not be in business. There's no way. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, what are some things that now that you've learned through this whole process that you wish you would have known then? Or is there something that really stands out to you? Like you wish you would have done this differently or has it all really kind of played out how you think maybe the world was, the universe intended it to? Or do you feel like there's something like, gosh, I would have done this differently? You know, the only thing I think I would have done differently is I think I would have went to Wells, I tried to go to Wellesley School, you know, a women, a women, mm-hmm. only women university. Growing up in Iowa, I was, you know, first one in my family to go to, you know, four year college right out of high school. So we didn't really know what to do. And so I, I looked at the yeah. first school, you know, got that in right away. And I would have been a really, really good candidate for an all women's university. That's mm-hmm. probably the only thing I probably would change in my trajectory. Sometimes I think, oh, I wish I'd started traveling earlier. And now, now that I'm at 50, you know, about 53, I'm like, 24 is pretty young to start traveling when you go to Africa. You know, I'm like, I think I was a little hard on myself, but you know, international schools, you see these students who these third culture kids traveling all the time. But, you know, so for me, I think really the only thing I, I would maybe have considered differently would be to gone to a all women's college, even like yeah. I think of degrees. I'm like, no education. I still I am still a teacher first. I don't usually say that, you know, in court, you know, corporate America, because some people don't have good experiences with teachers. So I don't want to identify sure. instead of saying, oh, I t- teach you, I say, I inspire you, you know, but really yeah. I'm always a teacher first. Midlife for you doing this. Uh, what are any, are there any challenges right now with midlife for you that are you know, that are popping up that you're, are you questioning things differently? Are you, uh, you know, is there a whole nother trajectory you want to go down? Like has midlife affected anything? for you as far as the, the work that you're doing? You know, I would say the only thing in midlife has changed because, you know, when I did my four years out of a backpack on $20 a day, I was 40. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's not, the, I'm not the typical 20 year old doing it. Um, I would say midlife for me is just being really aware of more invisibility as a woman. You know, you're invisible mm-hmm. enough unless you're sexualized or objectified. And, um, I'd say definitely the invisibility and my partner and I are both are entrepreneurs and we both in our late forties said, are we going to continue to be entrepreneurs or does one of us need to get into corporate? Because we were mm-hmm. very aware that in, you know, before, you know, when she turned 50, um, corporate thinks differently about a lot sure. of, you know, middle, middle, like midlife people, depending mm-hmm. on what role mm-hmm. you have and everything. Of course, if you're valuable, you're valuable, but there's always somebody who will do what you do for half the price kind of thing. So yeah. I think that's yeah. the only thing for me, midlife would probably be, um, you know, the, the visibility a little bit as well as just, you know, the, your body changes, the menopause, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you have that. No one, and I'm so glad that people are starting to talk about it and starting to do things about it. And, you know, research more about, I mean, was it only 10 years ago that 
we realize that women's heart attack symptoms are different than men because all the research, all medical research is done on white men. So right. everybody, if you're not a white man, that research, that medical research about your life, you know, is not correct. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm going through that whole menopause situation, but midlife, I think is taught kind of the value, like the value of time a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and how everything kind of matters more as far as time. Uh, but also just uh, having a voice and speaking up and doing what you want versus following along with the crowd or, you know, being silent or whatever for me, especially because I just, I realized that for so long I lived that way. Uh, I feel like sometimes the voice has become louder as I've gotten older and just more assured. And uh, I don't know, I feel like I've, I have the, the, the currency of, of time and age and just, maybe just wisdom uh, has offered me a little more confidence in certain things too. But uh, yeah, midlife, I think, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of dig it. Minus the whole menopause thing. It's kind of, I love this. I do like this time frame in my life, honestly, because I feel like I don't think I'd want to go back to my stupid twenties when I was dumb about I, a lot of things. I feel like my wisdom and, and learning a lot has helped me kind of live more of a, a richer and fuller life at this point. But yeah, I guess that's one thing for me, like in not choosing to have children, my lifestyle has always been one that I've done my own thing. So, yeah. um, but I hear that a, t a lot from women about, you know, when I even ask them, what do you want to be known for? You know, they cry, they get angry, they mm -hmm. silent because they don't know yeah. beyond being a mom, a wife, a caretaker, a breadwinner, all that. They haven't ever stopped. They've never been asked and they never stopped to think for themselves about it. And it's, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the one thing I hope that we switch that with uh, the next generation. And I think mm -hmm. having these more of these conversations and what you're doing, the work that you're doing is we're having these women that are coming out of college, that are getting out in the world, that they know exactly who they are, where they want to go, and that uh, there's no role they have to fill except for the one that's within themselves, you know, who they are innately. And uh, I just love that we're having this conversation. And I love that the work that you're doing in the world, because uh, women, I mean, whatever race, whatever country, nationality, culture, it's been a, an issue for a very long time of women not living up to expectations of themselves. And um, they can go so much further and they don't know what's limiting them until they get outside of that. And it takes sometimes people like you to show them what's possible for them. So I commend you for the work that you're doing and you. the impact you. you're making on women across the world. So I'm, I'm going to be a big cheerleader uh, now that I know <laughs> what the work you do and, and the things you're doing. And I can't wait for more people to to find out about the work and, and read your book and, and hopefully pass it on to their daughters. And then hopefully that's just a book that's just a maybe a staple in the college education or, you know, maybe it's a, that's I, my goal. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> my, my word this year is out dreaming. So I hope to get it into some, you know, um, curriculum in, in the college level. But one other thing too, is, you know, the UN number five in their, you know, their sustainable goals for 2030 is, you know, equity mm -hmm. for women. And if we have equity for women, all those other 17 goals or 16 goals will happen. Right. So there's a lot of power, um, in getting equity for women. The one thing I definitely want to ask you uh, mm -hmm. that I ask all my all my people um, that are on there, all my guests, were, what's one thing in your life right now that's helping you feel odd? And that's again awake, well, and empowered. Yeah, I like that question, um, especially because all oh, you know, Academy for Women's Empowerment, mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. writing has really mm -hmm. reconnected me, and I'm going to be launching my Substack um, in March, and okay. so uh, that is 
definitely working on that. And then working on, I'm taking a class on writing to change the world through op-ed project and working on a couple essays for the Atlantic magazine, hopefully. So writing has really made me feel, you know, um, awake, well, and empowered. Where can people find you online? What's the best place for people to, to, to follow along your journey and, and connect with you? Yeah, you know, probably my website, christyhemmer.com is a great place. Okay. Um, it does need to be updated usually. So that's always one of my challenges. And email, okay. I am a Gen Xer that lived overseas for many years. So emails are really great. You know, christyhemmer at gmail.com is probably the okay. easiest one to remember because I have four okay. email accounts. But sure. those are great ways. <laughs> Facebook, I have a Facebook account for Academy for Men's Empowerment as well. as, And okay. I do have an Instagram. That's, you know, christy.hemmer. So that's another one okay. too. Okay. Perfect. Thanks for asking because that's one of my areas of growth. So anyone out there who can help add or to help, help me out with that, I really appreciate it. So <laughs> no liking things or commenting is always, and yes. then of course, LinkedIn is a huge one too. So oh, yeah, connecting yeah, sure. on LinkedIn is a great place. Okay. Perfect. Love it. Well, Christy, thank you again for being here. I so love this conversation. I could have talked to you for hours. I, I know. So much I, I, I know. There's so much more. We, we can glean from your, your, you know, experiences and whatnot, but we'll have to have that down the road. And then Kansas another conversation. city when I stop in. Yes. Yes. We'll have that conversation. And for sure. Okay, I can't wait to meet you in person. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here and we'll, we'll, we'll chat soon. We'll be in touch. Thank you. And as I always say, kind of a moxie on. Thank you again for being here. I am so grateful for your time. And if you liked what you heard, please head to where you listen to podcast rate and review. So we can be found by other people. Please share on Instagram, your social media channels, wherever else you go so we can reach as many people as possible so they can meet these amazing women and hear these conversations. If you'd like to connect further, you can find me over at my website at halliesawyer.com or on Instagram. I'm usually going to be at uh, Hallie underscore Sawyer or The Odd Life, which is this podcast specific Instagram account. All right. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.